This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. When you think about that, you could say, well, you know, well, how did fish evolve to walk on land? Wouldn't they need like limbs and lungs and all this other stuff to arise simultaneously? And the answer was, uh, no, it's the Darwinian vision. That is, lungs existed for eons before creatures took their first, our distant ancestors took their first steps on land. Arms existed for millions of years and legs existed for millions of years before the creatures took their first steps on land. Fish living in aquatic ecosystems 380 million years ago or so already had lungs, already had uh, fins with arm and leg bones inside. or And they were living using these features to live in water such that when the opportunity to invade land happened, they already had this stuff. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, Available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara and this week's episode is all about the big evolutionary leaps in the history of life. The first time a fish crawled out of the water and onto land, it was a turning point that led to a brand new kind of life. But this couldn't happen on its own. That fish would have needed both lungs and legs. Neil Shubin evolutionary biologist and author of Some Assembly Required, says that fish didn't evolve these traits to help them live on land. In fact, the reason they could live on land at all was because they repurposed body parts they already had. The same remarkable changes have happened all throughout evolutionary history, from the first vertebrate life to the first flying dinosaurs. He speaks to our online assistant, Sarah Rigby. So first of all, can you please just tell us a bit about what your book is about? So my book's about evolution, the history of life. How did the great variety of 
of creatures we see on Earth today come about? And you know, we've you know, scientists have been thinking about this question for centuries, but we're at a really critical moment where new technologies, from genome science to developmental biology, as well as the technologies that we analyze fossils with and discover fossils with, it's really changed, and it's really given us a new window onto some of the classic questions of biology. You know, how did some of the great evolutionary changes in the history of life happen? How did a fish evolve to walk on land? How did birds evolve to fly? You know, how did those apparent impossible leaps happen? Well, I mean, new technologies are giving us new new answers. So why do we need to still study evolution? Didn't Darwin figure it all out with his uh, survival of the fittest? You know what's remarkable is Darwin in 1859, in his first uh, edition of The Origin, he, he went through about six of them, um, laid down the gr- laid the groundwork for some game changing ideas. Obviously, in how we you know we think about the diversity of life on Earth. You know, there's a b- before Darwin time and an after Darwin time, pre and post Darwinian. The reality is he came up with this notion before we had an, any knowledge of what a, of genetics, you know, of heredity, let alone DNA. And so it's interesting to take the Darwinian vision and think about it in a sort of in a DNA framework, in a molecular biology framework. How does it comport with the with the molecular evolution we've lived with in with for the last 30 years? And it's really remarkable because you know some of his ideas apply very well, others are fundamental. Um, still others, not so much. And so it's very interesting to sort of see how the Darwinian view plays out you know, in this new world of, of genetics. And the, the, the thing about it is it, it plays out extremely well, uh, but there are tons of surprises. Um, so one thing I found really interesting was uh, the story in your book about uh, St. George Jackson Mivet and how he mm. influenced Darwin's theory. Um, could you tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah, so sometimes, you know, great people are pushed by their greatest foes, you know, and so Darwin published the uh, first edition of The Origin of Species in 1859, and it was, he realized it was, it was not entirely complete. Well, you know, he had enormous uh, detractors at the time and supporters, but one of the people who was most influential in sort of pushing Darwin to greatness was Mivart. And he was just the ultimate contrarian in his personal life, in his scientific life. I mean, he'd love to just disagree. Um, you know, he changed his Anglican faith to Catholicism in his youth, really upset his parents and also upset his prospects for getting into Oxford and Cambridge at the time. Um, he was originally a Darwinian, but then turned on it and wrote a very influential critique of Darwin in a book he called On the Genesis of Species. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I mean, just that one word variant of, uh, of the Darwinian title was pretty remarkable. But he basically said, you know, look, you know, how do these, how, how did birds evolve to fly? You know, I mean, the, the, the number of changes that have to happen for birds to fly uh, are just impossibly large. Then they'd have to happen simultaneously. They'd have to have feathers, they'd have to have special lungs, special types of metabolism. And the same is true for every great transition, whether it's, you know, the origin of creatures that walk on land. They, you know, they have to have lungs and, and legs and arms and necks and all this sort of stuff. And basically, he wrote a challenge to Darwin. Darwin then, in uh, the the sixth edition of the Origin of Species, uh, about five years later, really responded to Mavart in a very important way and, and came up with and, and solidified one of the foundational ideas that we use when we think about the great transitions in the history of life. And he said, you know, look, look you know, the, the biggest changes aren't always the origin of new structures. It's a change in function of structures 
that already exist. It's repurposing and modifying things that already exist. Um, and he, in that response, really sort of set the stage for a, a new way and an important way and a very modern way of thinking about um, these great transitions, that it's not always the origin of a new structure or a new gene. It's taking what exists and finding new functions for them. And what that means is that, that organisms have, at every stage, a, you know, a range of features, genetics and, de- genetics and development in their anatomy. Um, and they vary a lot and considerably, and they have a reservoir of this variability so that when the opportunity arises, they can evolve in new ways. Um, one of the one of the signature exemplars of this is the transition from life in water to life on land. You know, you think about it, and something that I've been working on for a number of decades. When you think about that, you could say, well, you know, well, how did fish evolve to walk on land? Wouldn't they need like limbs and lungs and all this other stuff to arise simultaneously? And the answer was, uh, no. It's the Darwinian vision. That is, lungs existed for eons before creatures took their first, our distant ancestors took their first steps on land. Arms existed for millions of years, and legs existed for millions of years before the creatures took their first steps on land. Fish living in aquatic ecosystems 380 million years ago or so already had lungs, already had uh, fins with arm and leg bones inside. Or, and they were living using these features to live in water such that when the opportunity to invade land happened, they already had this stuff. And basically, they just changed the function from walking in water bottoms, you know, in the bottom of the water column to walking on land, uh, from using lungs to breathe in water that might have low oxygen. Uh, they use them to live on land. So, again, change in function. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a really Weird thing to think about. Why would fish have evolved lungs in the first place? Yeah, so this was known for a, a long time before Darwin, actually. Um, originally, Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire um, discovered this, uh, and others had inferred it before. So when you think about the... the so basically, if you look at fish, um, they have a gut tube, right? The mouth and the digestive tract. But lying adjacent to the digestive tract, in the thoracic area, and what's the equivalent of the chest area, right? Uh, in the fish equivalent of that, uh, are is, is typically an air sac that is related to the gut tube that develops from the, the gut tube. That sac in many fish serves as a swim bladder. It's a, it's a, like a bladder that serves for neutral buoyancy. In a lot of other fish, that sac is vascularized uh, and when it's filled with air, can serve as a respiratory organ, and that's a lung. And it turns out many fish have this lung. So how do they use the lung? Well, the fish that have lungs, and there are living exemplars of this today, um, have lungs, but they also have gills, and they they use both to, to breathe. When there's plenty of oxygen in the water, they'll typically use the gills, just like most fish. But when the oxygen level in the water decreases to a certain point, as it does in many you know freshwater systems uh, throughout the year, they'll rely more increasingly on the lungs, and they'll just go up to the surface, take a few gulps of air, and then go back down. So lungs are sort of an accessory organ for you know for breathing when the oxygen levels go down. It turns out they turned out to be a, a fabulous organ <laughs> when, when, this, <laughs> when fish decided to make that commitment to life on land. And then the same thing, by the way, applies to arms and legs. Um, you know, fish had 
arms and legs inside their fins for millions of years before any critter took the first steps on land. And they were using them, we think, to walk on the bottom of the water, like a lot of fish do today, to, to station hold, to, to grab the bottom and, 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 and wait there as the current brings by prey for them to snap up. Or sometimes even to live in the shallows, you know, in the mudflats and so forth. So, you know, fish evolving in these aquatic ecosystems already had important inventions that when the shift to land came, all they had to do was just change the function of stuff that already existed. So another example of this that I think you mentioned is the evolution of flight. Um, so when, when dinosaurs were evolving feathers, which was quite a, a controversial idea. Could you tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah. So, you know, the traditional view of dinosaurs from about a century ago was these giant lumbering beasts. And that view really changed dramatically starting about three decades or so when people started to realize that dinosaurs, particularly theropod dinosaurs, the you know, the carnivorous ones, were fast running, high metabolism, rapid growth rates, had hollow bones. And in fact, many of them had most you know, derived ones had bird-like structures, had forearms that looked something like wings, had a, a version of a, of a wishbone. All of a sudden, you know, they looked really bird-like. Um, and then, uh, starting in the mid-late 1990s, coming out of China, where at first they were reports, just like whispers, and then they it became real that the uh, that there are dinosaurs with feathers discovered in the fossil record. And for what, what was originally just one or two you know species with feathers, we now see almost all these carnivorous dinosaurs had some sort of feather-like structure outside them. So just like lungs in the origin of limbed animals, feathers predate the origin of flight. And we believe that feathers are used for courtship displays, like in birds today, and initially perhaps in thermoregulation, you know, serving as insulation, but they weren't used for flight. You know, and so again, it's a change in function. That Darwinian quote, you know, in his response to to Mavart is just so perfect. You know, it's um, it just explains, you know, how you can get great changes without having to wait for mutations to occur independently throughout the body. Creatures already have these things, right? So yeah, that's quite quite an important distinction, isn't it? So it's not that um, dinosaurs evolved feathers to fly, but they evolved feathers and that helped them to fly. That's right. They evolved feathers to live as better dinosaurs, <laughs> you, know, you know, not to fly. And likewise, lungs, you know, fish evolved lungs to, you know, be better fish. And it just so happens that later on, that was really great when fish started to walk on land or when dinosaurs needed to fly, you know. And so that's the, I think that's the same point. And what's neat about that point and what's so foundational about it, you know, when you think about how prescient Darwin was, was that it applies equally well to when we think about genes and how they come about. Like, the that it's not always the evolution of new genes that matters. It is in some cases, but in a lot of cases, it's not the evolution of new genes that really matters. It's finding new uses for genes that already existed, redeploying them in new ways and in new contexts to make new stuff. Can you give us an example of that, please? Oh, yeah. One of the great examples of this is the one that like, changed my life, right? So, the... Um, uh, starting in like the in the when molecular biology uh, tools became ever more uh, powerful, it was discovered that certain um, genes play a very fundamental role in building bodies. And uh, I think the interest in these genes started before we knew anything about DNA. It started when people were really looking at flies as a model for genetics, fruit flies, and they were cataloging different kinds of mutants. 
And these folks uh, working in the Fly Lab in Caltech, Columbia University, and elsewhere found just mutants that were just head scratchers. They would find, say, a fly where, with a leg where an antenna should be. Okay, so in the head, there was a lot of legs sticking out the head. Okay, I'm thinking about that one. Or they found a fly, a free fly, that had two body segments that held wings. Instead of two wings, it had four. I mean, they call it bithorax. The other one was called antennapedia, you know, so leg where antenna would be. Um, so these these were like flies that had like the right body parts, but the body parts, they somebody cut and pasted them, you know. They, they were in the wrong place. So these mutants captured a lot of people's interests such that when the DNA technology became ever more powerful, and this started in the early, mid-1980s, folks discovered the actual bits of DNA that encode for those genes – um, and they discovered that there is a whole catalog of these kinds of bodybuilding genes that control when and where organs develop uh, in the body. And not only did they find these genes in flies, but they found that versions of these same genes are making the bodies of everything from chickens to mice to people. So here was a you know, fundamental toolkit um, that uh, builds the bodies as different as flies and people. Um, and I, I remember that set of discoveries came out in the mid-late 1980s. I was training to be a paleontologist, and I saw these discoveries. They were published in, in Nature and PNAS and elsewhere. And I looked at them, and I said, okay, I need to learn a little molecular biology here. <laughs> you know, I was like, that was that important. So I, um, uh, and so when we think about, like, getting it back to Darwin's quote is your, to your question, I've taken the long way to get to your question, but <laughs> we're getting to it. So basically, you have these genes. The trick here is that these genes are involved in patterning the body, but they're also involved in patterning parts of the limb. They're involved in patterning parts of the brain. So what you're seeing is these genes arose for one purpose, to pattern the body axis, the general body plan. But then they were co-opted or redeployed to make appendages, to make parts of the head, and so forth. So it's like once you have one uh, tool right? One recipe, you can redeploy that recipe to make other things. So again, it comes down to sometimes the, the biggest shift is not in evolution, you know, new making new genes, but is using old genes in new ways. Another way we see that happening is in how some, how oftentimes new genes actually come about. When new genes come about, oftentimes, although not exclusively, but often they come about as duplicates. They're gene copying gone wild. So what we see is whole families of genes in our genome that are related to one another and that they evolved by um, copying, um, duplication in, um, in, in, of our genetic material. So of these bodybuilding genes, you know, um, flies have like sort of one cluster of these things. We have four, you know, so much more complexity. Um, so we find gene duplication is a very common event in the origin of new genetic material as well. So again, using the old to make the new, repurpose it, change its function or copy it and modify it. So I always assumed that if you were trying to, say, piece together the evolutionary history of life, that would basically just be fossil hunting. You know, you'd, you'd go out and you find a fossil and then you'd have a look at it and see where it fit in, like putting a puzzle piece in the puzzle. But actually, it sounds like there are there's a lot that we can learn from animals that are alive today. Um, so what how, what can we learn from from living animals about their ancestors? There's an enormous amount. So what we, we are so fortunate now that not only do we have fossils, but pretty much the, the bodies and the genes and the DNA of every creature alive today is a library of its 
evolutionary history. That is, every creature alive today, inside its genomes, inside its cells, inside its tissues, contains artifacts of billions of years of the history of life. And the trick is, how do we know how to unlock that? And we see that vividly, you know, with each new genome that we that we discover, or that we we read about. Um, you know, we have the Human Genome Project, the Rice Genome Project, the Lily Genome Project, the Corn Genome Project, genome projects for thousands upon thousands of different kinds of species. You know, we get them with ever-increasing frequency. And what we've learned is now to compare the genome in many important ways, not just the sequence of DNA, but the structure of DNA uh, as well. And when we do that, we can start to ask some really important questions. So we have a knowledge of the chimpanzee, genome. We have a knowledge of the human genome. We have a knowledge of all kinds of fish genomes and on and on and on. We can begin to ask the question at the level of DNA, what makes a human different from chimps? What genes are important? What genes aren't? You know, what, what are the processes that are important in making distinctively human features? We could take the question back even further. We can compare the genome, the human genome, to that of a fish. And we can ask, what's the same and what's different? What's different about the genetic recipe that builds the body of a fish, like live today, from the genetic recipe that builds the body of a human or a chimpanzee uh, alive today? And so these are questions that were formerly the domain of, you know, of fossils or comparative anatomy. Now we can unlock them with the knowledge of the genome. In your book, you have this uh, diagram that compares the embryos of lots of different uh, species of animal. Quite uh, wide-ranging species and uh, at different periods through their uh, development and early on they all look really strangely similar um could you tell us a bit about that that diagram and and the implications of that please yeah so that diagram uh, is a version of one that was done by um carl ernst von Baer, who was a embryologist who lived um decades before um darwin and uh he uh was interested in asking the question you know, how does the development from egg to adult of critters as different as turtles and fish and, peop and, and mice, how, uh, how do they differ? And so he was collecting lots of embryos and storing them in vials. So he'd have these different embryonic stages of different embryos and he'd put them in vials with, with alcohol or formalin and to preserve their, you know, pr to preserve them because so, he'd look at them under the microscope. But he forgot to label, or the, I believe the labels fell off a few of his vials, fell off a vial that contained, you know, so he had like turtle and mouse and fish embryos in these vials, but he knew that they were, that, you know, but he didn't know which was which. And he couldn't tell them apart because <laughs> they're all early embryos. And so this you know, sort of led him to think about, you know, his theory and his, his idea is one of, of sort of differentiation. That is, early, embryo, early embryonic stages of critters of different species tend to look much more similar than do later embryonic stages. And that's what you see in that, in that diagram. You, I mean, I, you know, I put a version of his, which is, you know, turtles and, and mice and, and fish and birds and so forth. And early, embryon, early embryonic stages, you know, they, you might find some differences, but they tend to look extremely alike. And then they acquire those differences later in, in, in development. And that was really important. And then a version of the same sort of theory, altered a bit, came out after Darwin published The Origin of Species, and it turned out to be wrong, but and, and not a good generaliz and not a very good generalization, but it stimulated an enormous amount of work. Um, and that was the notion that uh, by Ernst Haeckel, 
which was the famous one, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. And by that, what he meant is development from egg to adult, ontogeny, recapitulates phylogeny, which is evolutionary history. So his theory was, take a lot, you know, it's very different from von Baer's. His was basically, if you looked at the development of any species, it will track its evolutionary history. So if you looked at a human embryo, you'd see it go through, it would go through like a fish stage, then an amphibian stage, and a reptile stage, and so forth and so forth. Well, you can imagine, oh, and also Heckel was an amazingly good and talented artist as well. And so his book was just rich with illustrations, um, rich with ideas, rich with conjectures, and so forth, and it was enormously influential. Turns out that's probably not in a good generalization that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. We see it in some structures, though. Well, like if you look at the development of our kidneys, there definitely is sort of a, it does track its evolutionary history to some extent, as well as some other structures. But it's not like a law of nature, like what he wanted to, and what he wanted to propose. But honestly, I think where Heckel was most influential was really in stimulating a, uh, an interest in studying embryos. Um, as as vehicles to understand evolutionary history, even though his in particular theory was wrong, it stimulated so many others to think about embryos in new ways. So and, that, and so he was important, just like Mavard actually, I come to think of it, uh, in being wrong, <laughs> you know, but and uh, in, in how it stimulated, you know, the, the you know really the foundational work by others. So why is it that uh, all of these species look so similar so early in their development? Well, remember, I mean, one thing we've learned in genetics is a lot of them have similar kinds of genes. You know, so when I said that flies and fish and turtles and mice and birds and people all have versions of the same genes building their bodies, what we find is it's not only even just the same genes, and sometimes it's whole networks of genes that interact with each other during development. So to some extent, uh, I think it's reflecting history. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's reflecting the fact that these creatures have similarities, uh, getting back to Darwin, that the reason why they have these similarities is that all of them shared a common ancestor sometime in the distant past, you know, and some of them shared very distant common ancestors, some of them share more recent common ancestors, but common ancestors they all share. And so we're seeing that as a reflection of this common ancestry. So there are some species uh, which have uh, juvenile states, like like frogs have a tadpole stage and uh, things like that. Um, and so could you tell us a bit about how these juvenile states can sort of influence the evolution of species. Yeah, hugely. So, I mean, I mean, one of the most vivid examples of this was Auguste Dumarille, who was the uh, keeper of reptiles and amphibians um, at the Paris Natural History Museum in the 1800s. And Dumarille, one of the iconic stories is uh, when Dumarille, who was famous at the time, um, and he was a, he became a Darwinian after the 1859, the first you know edition of Darwin. Dumriel was enthusiastically a Darwinian, so and he was famously so. So people would send him specimens from around the world. And one day he received a box uh, from colleagues who were working in Mexico, and it was a box that contained a handful of salamanders, fully grown adults. And the reason why they sent them to Dumriel was these fully grown adult salamanders were also um, aquatic. They had external gills. They had big, like, they, fleshy um, fin uh, limbs that looked a little bit like fins. They had a tail that had a big fold on it, like fin-like sort of thing. Lots of, like, aquatic features in a, in a sexually mature adult salamander. So Dumuriel thought, well, I'll just study these. Maybe it could tell us about, give us insights into the transition from fish to land-living creature. So Dumuriel, but then he got busy with other things. So he stored these things in his enclosure, would feed them, and then came back at one point, um, and he found two 
different kinds of salamander in his box. He found at one point he had full adult, the ones he was sent, the ones with the, um, with the external gills and the, all the aquatic traits. But then living right next to them were other salamanders, fully grown aquatic, fully grown adults, but these had no external gills. These were fully terrestrial. They had v- fully terrestrial limbs. They had no uh, fin-like tail, nothing flipper-like tail, none of that stuff. So it's almost like some he put like chimpanzees in a cage one year, came back eight months later and found chimpanzees and gorillas, you know, happily living together. <laughs> He's like, what is going on in my box? So that stimulated Dumeril to think about larvae. And so Dumeril and others started to think about, you know, let's look at the life history of these things. Let's look what happens from egg to adult. And he found, as your question suggested, uh, that the importance here is what happens to the larval stage. So as we know, in tadpoles, you know, tadpoles hatch from the egg. They swim around as larvae. And those larvae, the, the, the tadpoles are aquatic, and they have aquatic mechanisms. They swim around. They feed in water with suction feeding and so forth. Then something happens. It's called, you know, a surge in usually in the um, thyroid hormone, um, and then they undergo metamorphosis. And in metamorphosis, as we all know, they go from a tadpole to a frog. Their legs change, their skull changes, their whole body changes, and they become jumping frogs. Well, the same thing is true with salamanders. They go through the, so many species of salamanders, although not all, will undergo. They'll have aquatic larvae. They'll swim around, live in water, undergo metamorphosis, and then become. Uh, of, you know, fully terrestrial adults. What Dumeril found is that metamorphosis is optional, <laughs> and it's <laughs> and it can it can vary, and so that you know the the species that are fully terrestrial undergo metamorphosis. The ones that were those you know fully aquatic adults, they uh, did not undergo more metamorphosis. There was a simple shift that happened in their endocrinology and their hormone levels. A very simple one. And that simple hormonal shift led to changes across the entire body, which would have been, you know, just an enormous amount of, of, of genetic change if it would have to happen otherwise. So we found that you can have, through simple shifts of development, uh, enormous changes to the bodies of critters. And so those two different kinds of salamanders just came about from just simple, you know, whether you metamorphose, metamorphose or not. And it turns out that those kinds of properties are important for evolving systems more broadly, from invertebrates to other kinds of creatures. That is one very fundamental way of evolving is by changing the timing of developmental events, stopping early or stopping later, um, you know, slowing things down or speeding them up. The more you do that, the more you can have changes that are coordinated across uh, the entire body. And that was work that was stimulated largely by Dumeril and the people that, that followed him. So there's an example uh, of this sort of, you know, ch- changing of the speed of development uh, that really surprised me. And that was the example of the, the sea squirt. Could you tell us about how the sea squirt uh, led to yeah. you know, vertebrate life? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, you know, when you think of vertebrates like us, right? So, you know, where did vertebrates with backbones and skulls and skeletons come from? Well, if you look at that and you try to trace that in terms of comparative anatomy, there are three traits that are seen in early development that all vertebrates and their closest invertebrate relatives have. And that is they have a nerve cord that runs along the back. It's, it's a called a dorsal nerve cord, hollow nerve cord. They have gill slits in the pharyngeal area. Um, and they have a um, supportive rod called a notochord. 
So those three traits, when I teach intro bio, I teach these are the three fundamental traits of the vertebrate body plan, and there are a number of you know invertebrate creatures that have them, and they're our closest relatives. And so we, we talk about those. So people have always asked, you know, where do vertebrates come from? You know, and there's some, uh, there's lots of really interesting uh, living creatures alive today. There's one called Amphioxus, which has a beautiful aspect of the vertebrate body plan, even though it's not a vertebrate, it's, but it shows the what they're derived from. But others, uh, some Russian biologists, as well as um, uh, Garstang, who was a, a great, um, a great biologist uh, in the UK, um, came up with a, a, a different idea. That is, that the the closest relatives of vertebrates they proposed um, were the oddest-looking ones. So Garstang, Walter Garstang, was his name, um, uh, came up with the idea that, uh, building on what Russian biologists did a, a few decades before. Um, that the closest relatives of vertebrates looked something like a sea squirt. That is, a sea squirt, to paint a word picture, a sea squirt um, is something that does not even look alive. (laughs) It's like, basically, they're these sessile animals attached to rocks. It looks like a formless lump of clay. You know, if you were to take a peek at it, it has like a a hole at the top and they pump uh, water. But there's no obvious head, no obvious body, no obvious tail. There's no obvious nerve cord, no obvious cartilage rod, that notochord I was telling you before, let alone gill slits. There's nothing there. But yet Garstang believed that they held the secret because he knew something about development. He knew something about embryology. Because if you look at sea squirts, they don't start their development like that. What they start like is they are hatched from an egg and the larval sea squirt looks something like a tadpole. It has a head and a long, slender body. Uh, It swims around in the water. And when he looked at the tadpole, what do you see? It has that nerve cord. It has that that cartilage rod called a notochord. And it has the gill slits. And what happens is these little larvae swim around. And at some point, they decide, okay, it's time to settle down. Uh, And they swim to a rock. They attach to the rock. They proceed to lose the tail, lose the head, lose the notochord, lose the nerve cord, l- lose most of the gill slits, and change their body to become this, you know, this formless lump of clay with a little hole on top. And, and so basically what <laughs> Garstang said is, well, the shift to vertebrates was real simple. You begin as a larval, uh, a larval uh, tunicate uh, animal, and then uh, don't metamorphose. <laughs> you know, you know, so basically stop early and then just grow from there. And so there's a case where, you know, putting the, you know, stopping metamorphosis, not undergoing that metamorphosis and just continuing development from there. It was a likely big part of our own distant uh, evolutionary history. So that's a, a really weird example of something that's happened in our evolutionary past. Um, what is your favorite thing that you've learned about from this book? Uh, evolutionary quirk like that. What's your favorite one? Uh, my favorite, so one of my favorites, um, is I have so many, so it's hard to choose one. It's like, you know, you're asking me which of my children I like the most. Um, but, um, ah, you know, it's hard not to love salamander tongues to be quite honest. <laughs> so and not all salamander tongues, but most. So one, you know, there are two kinds of animals in this world. They're animals that bring their head to the food, think lions, uh, and cheetahs. Um, then there, uh, there are animals that bring the food to their head. Think salamanders living on land. So some salamanders living on land have evolved a really amazing biological machine and that it's a machine to project their tongue. They slip out their, snap out their tongue about almost the length of their body in like less than a millisecond. 
and they catch an insect and bring it all back. I mean, it's just an amazing biological machine that they shoot their tongue out ballistically, like a missile, attaches to an insect and, and just as fast brings it back into their mouth. And for that to happen, it takes lots of changes. It takes changes to the gill apparatus. It changes the muscles of the body. I mean, you're inventing a whole new machine with lots of different parts. It turns out that that machine with lots of different parts likely came about two to four times independently in the history of salamanders. So this amazing biological machine was attained multiple times independently. The more we you know, study the, the DNA record, we see that. And it just shows an example to me, which I think is very important in evolution, that is oftentimes, in fact, more often than not, there is not just you know, one pathway to something. There's multiple pathways, evolutionary pathways, to the same invention that we find is in evolution over and over again, the independent origin of the same invention in distantly related species. You know, and I think that's the more we learn about genetics and development, the more we learn about how, you know, how animals function as machines, the more we see that these these limited number of solutions are hit upon again and again. And that's telling us something very important about, you know, the nature of evolution and biology and so forth. So salamander tongues, love them. That was Neil Shubin talking about how big evolutionary changes really happen. His book, Some Assembly Required, is out now. If you haven't already, make sure you look back through our podcast feed and listen to our special news series, which we've called Everything You Wanted to Know About, where we get a world-renowned scientist to answer your questions. In the first series, we get Professor Jim Al-Khalili to answer the big questions in physics. We discuss the Big Bang, multiple worlds, and end up, like all things, at the inevitable heat death of the universe. Let us know what you think with a rating and a review, and subscribe to make sure you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. And on top of all that, we've still managed to put together a brand new issue of BBC Science Focus magazine. And this month, we look at the race to find a vaccine for COVID-19. Head over to sciencefocus.com forward slash subscribe for the latest offer. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.